Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm True Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, joined today by correspondent John Evans and senior business reporter Rachel Sapin, as well as executive editor John Fiorillo. Let's dive in. It's been another crazy stretch of days for seafood news, and that makes it always difficult to choose what we're going to drill down on. And as much as I would like to leave American seafoods uh, and and not have to uh, discuss it, it's been just an incredibly interesting saga that's affected so much of the supply chain that uh, we've we've continued to cover it, and it's uh, it's continued to be um, uh, fascinating and has a lot of implications. So um, let's catch everybody up. Um, Rachel, you have been playing point on this along with Mr. Fiorillo. Can you just tell us a bit about uh, where the case stands now? So Judge Sharon Gleason in Alaska uh, made a, a ruling, and that has changed uh, changed things a bit. Can you just tell us a bit about what has happened? Yeah, well, um, earlier this week, the judge finally granted uh, American Seafoods a preliminary injunction uh, so that they can't keep accruing fines for this 26 million pounds of product that's stuck in um, that uh, facility in Atlantic Canada. Um, so yeah, they are actually able to move that product to some of their customers, um, which is a pretty big deal. And it's still kind of undecided what is happening with the other part of that $350 million fine <laughs> issue, but um, they are at least getting that product to customers. I spoke with um, Tom Zafiro, who runs uh, Channel Fish Processing, in Massachusetts and provides the USDA with contract with a pollock for its federal school lunches. And he said he's able to start getting that product to them, start getting things going. He's not facing layoffs anymore. So at least that product has been kind of uh, relieved of, of the uh, pressure from this lawsuit for now. Yeah, and there was also, um, you know, other contracts were at stake from all this blockage as well. Um, Nippon Suisan Kaisha's um, uh, uh, King and Prince division, um, uh, the the CEO there testified that um, their contract with uh, for for fish sandwiches, which um, is code for one of the fast food companies, was actually in jeopardy if that product didn't get freed up. So. A lot of people breathing a sigh of relief that it's um, it's back in the in the supply chain. And like you said, Rachel, I mean, we're basically now in a bit of I mean, that's one milestone, but we're, we're now in a bit of a limbo right until uh, the next stage of this, which is kind of essentially deciding whether or not this Bayside route, which for those of you that don't remember, includes the teeny tiny train. Um, whether or not the Bayside route is legal, right? That's kind of the next phase here. Yeah, absolutely. That is what we're going to, I guess that's what's going to happen in the next part of this saga. It's not even really clear where things are going to go next. I think uh, the American seafood subsidiaries have a lot of issues to sort through before uh, those companies get back on track. And also, um, we've been kind of just trying to follow up with our sources about you know, have you resumed using the Bayside route to get Alaska Pollock over to um, the U.S. East Coast? And it doesn't sound like people are super comfortable resuming that route, given that, like you mentioned, Drew, you know, it's not completely clear um, on the legality of that route. 
under the rules of the Jones Act and, and how the U.S. Customs and Border Protection is enforcing action on that route. Right, and then we also saw um, the customs said this in their their um, filings in this case that um, some Russian product for the first time in ten years had made it through that route. What that tells us is that um, suppliers have been able to get, um, ironically, have been able to get product um, to um, to manufacturers via Russia. So if you think about that, that's the weird thing about the Jones Act is actually if you're shipping directly from Russia to the East Coast, you don't have the same problems as somebody trying to work their way around the Jones Act. So um, it's a it's it's a complicated, complicated thing. Now, John Fiorillo, um, this is going to have probably some some implications now that we've got the customs and the American seafoods battle. Is it a bit of a kind of a. a truce for a moment i guess now the next phase is who uh who when when might the lawsuit start flying and we've already had the shipping companies some of these major shipping companies say oh yeah we're going to be suing because we didn't uh, for the fees we got because we did not know about the that there was this this issue probably other companies are going to have claims as well i'm assuming um now what what's your thought on how competitors might uh might weigh in on this that we're we're not using this bayside route we we did have a major ceo um uh spat off with with his opinion yeah we've got an inkling of what might be coming and it's it, it's it could get pretty serious and um, you're speaking of Roger May, the president of uh, <clears throat> Peter Pan Seafood, and he filed an affidavit uh, last week with the court giving his side of the equation. He, his company is largely not a player in that, in that Surimi, or I'm sorry, in that Pollock business. Um, doesn't mean they wouldn't want to be, but in his in his declaration to the court, he raised the specter of unfair competitive advantage gained by American and the others that have been using this route. Uh, it's given them the ability to uh, bring the product to those customers on the East Coast a lot cheaper than they they would have to if they used uh, the standard route and a lot cheaper than competitors who might want to get in on that market would be able to so as rachel mentioned you know the next phase appears to be uh you know some some litigation on the legality of the route under the jones act but it also could go in the direction in addition of you know some some exploration to collusion or price fixing or something along those lines i, I wouldn't be surprised because I mean, the whole reason they're doing this is so they can do it cheaper, right? And they can get they can get the Pollock to McDonald's for a price that McDonald's could still sell the fillet of fish at. So um, I think that his testimony is really interesting, and I think although it was short, it was you know a few hundred words. I think uh, it raises a potentially massive, massive problem. You know, I think one of the things that that strikes me about this whole uh, this whole um, chaotic uh, saga, if you pull back a little bit, 
there's there's something here to be said about what uh, what the quote unquote right price is for for fish, and for a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, fish for a lot of these species, and it's just interesting that when you're really focusing on just slivers of pennies on the dollar. Um, that that um, that that the the amount of 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 money that people are paying to get their fish and create these products so that they reach a certain price point for for buyers, um, you know the whole system seems a little bit broken. Um, there has been some price raises uh, recently um, where retailers and food service buyers are understanding and being sympathetic toward the idea that. There, there is inflation along the value chain, especially in shipping. Um, and we were saying just before we, we jumped onto the podcast, you know, shipping, logistics, all these disruptions is now, um, is now a, a running thread through almost every uh, news development and, and almost every interview that we do, that it is so on the minds of the industry. So, um, you know, but but I think that there there is some exploration there needed of of you know how can the industry get uh, products on the shelves and and get uh, and get people to pay pay more for them and um, yeah I mean it's John Fiorillo, I mean you've you've written about uh, about U.S. markets for forever. Um, and uh, since we're kind of focused on that right now, um, obviously this goes for all Western markets. But I mean, is there just in a larger sense, like, you know, what do you think about how all this price pressure is kind of bearing out on the market? I mean, is there scope for uh, for somehow getting the, the price up um, in a time like this when there's so much inflation? And how do you think companies do that? Well, I mean, I think I think you're seeing it. The interesting thing, though, is demand. If you believe all the numbers out there and all the people who are tracking this, demand for seafood since COVID set in ha- is at record levels. So, the price <clears throat> increases that are working their way through don't seem to be discouraging people. I I was at the grocery store the other day and I picked up a piece of steak I was going to buy for dinner. And I, it was like $20 or $23 or something like that. And I was like, uh-uh, nope, and put it back. So, um, you know, consumers, I'm sure, are feeling this. Um, but as when it comes to seafood, at least from what we can gather from the, the market data, um, any price increases coming through are not, are not um, you know, hurting demand in any significant way right now. No, especially not on the salmon front, you know, and, and that's what's kind of amazing is I wonder, you know, what lessons are there from salmon to look at? It's obviously a very different product and plays in a very different way than, than any other uh, any other species. But um, that's been remarkable to see. Every time somebody predicts there's going to be some kind of demand ceiling or some kind of cost ceiling, um, seems like consumers just blow right through it. That yeah. said... Uh, salmon farmers are under uh, just as much pressure as well to keep their costs down. Um, and I'll just uh, I'll just pivot over to you, John Evans. Um, the speaking of costs, there are uh, there are possibly some trade battles uh, on the horizon um, for Scottish salmon in particular. 
uh and um and and certainly it's um it's a uh it, it's a product that uh, along with whiskey that is very much associated with the country very important food export for the country um so what what is going on with uh with brexit you're so good at explaining this and breaking it down for for us all the time so maybe you can break it down for folks listening as well why might there be tariffs coming on scottish salmon yes at the, i mean for the uninitiated at the uh, end of last year on christmas eve actually to be precise uh, uh, Britain and the European Union finally announced a free trade and cooperation agreement. Um, prior to that, became uh, was a, um, a, another um, a set of negotiations which came together at the end there on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's all it's all wrapped in together. And um, why is Northern Ireland at the centre of this? Well. Um, it's it, it's uh, it goes all, there's a lot of history to this to be quite honest. Um, the um, Northern Ireland is a, is part of the United Kingdom. The Republic of Ireland is a separate country and part of the United and part of the uh, European uh, Union. Um, and as part of the negotiations that took place uh, at the end of last year, both sides were desperate to avoid a hard border on the uh, island of Ireland. That was between the Republic in the South and, the, uh, and Northern Ireland. That was because in the past uh, it has been a, a target, the, the hard border that is, for Republican terrorists, those who want a united Ireland. Um, so uh, going against everything he said before and um, his predecessor Theresa May said before, um, Boris Johnson effectively uh, agreed to have a, um, a border drawn down the Irish Sea between the British mainland and the uh, between Northern Ireland. And that then angered the unionist community, which is uh, pro-UK, sees itself, uh, uh, sees uh, the uh, Northern Ireland as British. And so with that hard border down the, um, down the, uh, down the uh, Irish Sea, that meant that goods uh, had to be checked um, coming into Northern Ireland, uh, coming into Northern Ireland to, to prevent them being sold in the south uh, of Southern Ireland, which is, as we said, is part of the European Union. So, um, yes, I mean, the, the, the British, through their chief negotiator, Lord Frost, said that the, uh, has said that the British are uh, sorry, the Europeans are applying the uh, the protocol too puritanically, and um, for, for their part, uh, more recently, the the European Union has a, uh, has uh, conceded that there is a problem, and their uh, chief negotiator, amongst others, uh, has been to Northern Ireland um, to meet with uh, business leaders and uh, the uh, the. Uh, Unionist community, the Protestant community, um, to try and work out the best way forward. And what they came up with this week is that they will uh, ease checks on about 80% of uh, foodstuffs or retail foodstuffs coming into uh, Northern Ireland. Um, but that it'll be on the proviso that that those foodstuffs will stay in, the North, in Northern Ireland. So they'll have to be labelled for sale in Northern Ireland and the UK only. Um, but um, as always, there's much more to this. 
um, what was agreed before was that the European Court of Justice, uh, which uh, the Brexiteers detest, would have the final say, as it is the arbiter on the single market, um, of which Northern Ireland, by the way, effectively remains um, a part of under the protocol. So, um, yes, and now uh, having agreed, uh, negotiated, agreed and signed a deal uh, that, uh, which included the uh, European Court of Justice uh, being the arbiter of the uh, of, of the um, of the protocol or, the, or the, certainly the trade parts of it. Uh, now the British government is saying that they want to get rid of that uh, part of the deal. So uh, and ba basically draw up a brand new deal. Um, today, uh, Lord Frost, the chief negotiator, appeared on Sky News and he said there was still a, a big gulf between the two sides. Um, if in eventually if the the whole thing breaks down. Um, the, the Europeans can launch a legal process, uh, which is likely to take more than five months, I was told the other day by a leading uh, Cambridge University uh, law expert. Um, uh, so that will run into next year. But uh, ultimately, um, the European Union uh, is likely to target salmon and Scotch whiskey because they're both very politically sensitive, as you mentioned. Um, so, yes, uh, it'll rest for three weeks for now because of the, um, the COP environmental summit, which is coming up and it's focusing all minds of the British government. Um, but yes, in three weeks time, uh, the whole thing will pick up again. And, and it's no small thing because, uh, you know, through the first half, uh, Scottish salmon exports hit record volumes to the to the EU. Um, so uh, the figures from uh, from uh, from customs were that uh, the exports by volume were up 67 percent and by value by 43 percent to the European Union. Um, so it makes up a significant chunk uh, of uh, Scottish salmon exports and, uh, and it's it's growing. But you, you notice that those uh, that those figures were were um, were telling, right? Yeah, that was that was the concern for the for the Scottish industry, and let's not forget that one of the reasons, or one of the main reasons, it could be argued that the uh, the prices are lower is because the uh, salmon is now getting there at least a day later than it was before. Uh, as it used to travel overnight, but now because it gets held up in customs, I'm uh, um, trying to get into France. Um, they say it's not as valuable as it would have been uh, before because it's not uh, as fresh as it was before. So, um, you know, at the start of, of, of this process, when, when uh, Britain left or United Kingdom left the EU's orbit at the end of last year, there were, there were delays of up to three days. Now it's down to about a day or so. So, yes, I mean, it's not good news if... Um, you know, you, you're getting less. Uh, you're getting less money for your your fish, and also, we don't know uh, what level of tariffs uh, would be applied to salmon. I, I can't hazard a guess, but um, you know, uh, in the Boeing dispute, uh, you know, figures of 25% were put on fish. Whether that would be the case in, in this case, we'll have to see. Yeah, and it, it's um, yeah, as as you mentioned, John, the Brexit costs. Um, the Scottish Salmon Producers Organization. They were. Uh, lined out some estimated figures that were kind of stunning. 
um, they estimated that um, Scottish salmon producers in total uh, were paying around 120,000 uh, pounds. That's about $160,000 uh, a month just in paperwork. So it's it's no it's no small cost to the uh, to the industry. Yeah. Right now, right around the corner uh, is show season. Now, normally around this time, we would be uh, maybe heading to Conchamar in Spain, or maybe uh, folks would be headed to the China uh, fishery show, uh, and uh, and and already planning, doing their budgeting for twenty twenty two for uh for boston for the north atlantic seafood forum in bergen for barcelona etc etc um i think one of the one of the things we've heard most from the industry that's been most disruptive i would say um in the sense of of how so many executives kind of organize their lives was the the disappearance uh or the the um the movement online of trade shows um, but here we go. Uh, you know, we, we as well as a, a company, Intrafish, we attend these shows uh, and we um, now are doing our signing up for booths and doing our planning as well. And um, travel budgeting right now is just sort of a shot in the dark, given that we don't know what's going to happen with COVID and the restrictions and how people will um, be thinking and behaving. But um, but John, you know, you you covered um, kind of the uh, the impact of the show closures on a diversified uh, group, which owns uh, the Boston and Barcelona seafood shows and several other trade shows. It's a it's a massive company, but um, it operates those two seafood shows, which are the largest in the world by far, uh, in, in terms of uh, of its global global reach. Um, so, John, take a look in your crystal ball. So what are things going to look like, do you think? Are people going to return to shows in the way that they did before? Well, I mean, that is the, the million-dollar question. I'm sure it's keeping the diversified people up at night. Um, I, I, You know, who can say? We don't know what COVID will be like uh, a week from now, a month from now. You know, who knows in March? Um it could be a resurgence. It could be all under control. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm just guessing here. I, I did happen to look at uh, the Boston Seafood Show exhibitor list for the upcoming show in March and uh, took a quick count. And by my count, there's roughly 500 uh, exhibitors signed up. Um, so to put that in context, in 2019, um, the company reported that they had 1,392 or so exhibitors for that show. So 500 is far, far away from 1,392. So, um, but it's early, you know, it's only October and people sign up. And like you said, I mean, I've, I've spoken to plenty of people who said they just don't know what to do. They don't know whether to go forward with it or not but one overriding trend I, i'm hearing is that they'll probably have smaller booths in size and send fewer people if they do attend so and i i think that bears out for us as well as a company so um that's you know that's the best i know at this point um but again it 
we're, we're slaves to what happens with COVID, whether it, you know, intensifies or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, same thing. Yeah. That, that, uh, that you're hearing from everybody that, uh, I think the rest of us have spoke to as well is that who knows, but the odds are it's going to be a dialed back, uh, presence. So that should be interesting to see how things evolve. You're seeing a lot more, uh, digital events that have happened, although, wow, it's getting crowded with digital events and webinars and, um, you know, we'll see how how long those. Uh, I, I think they'll always be a part now of how people work, but how prominent they'll be, who knows? Um, but yeah, let's let's see. I mean, I've you know, following on social media and just talking to people there, people are returning to travel, but it tends to be it seems more targeted. You know, visiting specific clients, um, visiting specific partners. Um, but you know, the the overriding. Um, sentiment when you uh, when you see people talking about that is they're very very happy to get out there in in the field um, but whether or not they'll want to be around 10 15 20,000 people from all over the world we shall find out well and you know the exhibitors are one thing but the buyers are really a whole nother thing so we I, I have not heard I do not know what the um, what the approach going on at big retailers and food service companies is right now as far as sending their key buyers to shows, whether it be for seafood or anything else. So, um, you know, I'm sure the exhibitors are sitting there thinking, well, we go, but what if nobody come? You know, what if our guys don't come? Uh, you know, some, uh, the buyers. So um, that's a whole nother angle to it that, I don't think we have any clarity on at this point. Well, let's uh, wait and see. All right. Well, why don't we leave it there? Uh, we've got plenty of other things to talk about, but the majority of the uh, news and analysis is going to be on intrafish.com, where the seafood news keeps us busy, busy, busy. So head over to intrafish.com. You can sign up for any number of newsletters there on topics that matter to you and of course you can follow us on social media linkedin twitter etc thanks for joining us folks we'll speak to you soon